Welcome to the latest in the Bova News podcast series. Today, we're putting our focus on dairy policy. With the new administration and ever-changing regulations and policy, it's hard for dairy producers to stay up to date with everything that's going on in Washington. That's why for this podcast, we've decided to go right to the top and hear from the person leading the organization that helps impact dairy policy. Visiting with me today is Jim Mulhern, who's a veteran agriculture and food policy strategist with over 35 years of experience working with Washington, D.C. policymakers and the media. He was named president and chief executive officer of the National Milk Producers Federation in January of 2014. And since taking over leadership of NMPF, Jim has directed the dairy organization's work on a wide range of important issues, including trade policy, immigration reform, the farm bill, environmental policy, animal care, food labeling, and standards of identity, and much more. So welcome to the podcast today, Jim. Thanks very much, Kim. It's great to be with you. Uh, For today, why don't we start off with, can you give us kind of a lay of the land in terms of policy? What policy issues are front and center today for national milk? Well, you know, as ever, Kim, this is a very um, uh, productive industry when it comes to uh, uh, challenging issues in the policy environment. Um, There's a whole range of of issues, you know, some on Capitol Hill, some with USDA, others with EPA, the Food and Drug Administration, and on and on that, that we're engaged in. I guess if I tried to, to uh, hit some of the, the, the top issues that we're engaged in right now, um, I would start, as always, with milk pricing and how policy can impact uh, milk pricing. We're coming out of this, this COVID pandemic, uh, which, uh, frankly, could have been incredibly devastating to our industry. When you look back at where we were just 15 months ago, and a number of policy efforts that we drove were highly successful in taking what could have been a disastrous year for dairy farmers and really smoothing out a lot of those bumps along the way. And I I do want to talk a little bit about those numbers because they are significant. So it it starts with with milk pricing. Uh, Beyond that, um, I I would have to talk about trade policy. This is incredibly important for our industry as we look at the productive capacity of of U.S. milk producers. We now produce uh, about 30 billion pounds more milk than we consume in the U.S. And that means if we don't have markets, export markets for that 30 billion pounds, and it's growing every year, if we don't have markets for that, that is going to depress prices domestically. So finding new and better markets means the need for new and better trade policies to accomplish um, that objective. And that's a key focus for us. Um, the third issue, and it's, it's probably right up there with the other two is ag labor, continues to be a, a nagging, challenging issue, both for our industry, uh, but more importantly, uh, a challenging issue for this country to address. Um, we are now um, beyond, beyond the point where we have to deal with um, immigration reform in this country. Our, our industry, frankly, s- just simply cannot produce the, uh, be the productive engine uh, for the U.S. economy and for the world um, that we can be uh, without um, improvements and access to, uh, to immigrant labor. Much of, the, much of our labor force today is, um, is immigrant labor, and, um, and, and that is, we know that much of it is undocumented. So addressing this issue, getting it fixed there is critically important. And, and finally, I would just, I would point to these issues um, around the, the concept of sustainability. 
um, that is increasingly important. It's a, it's a journey we've been on for many, many years in the dairy industry. Uh, we've been focused on sustainability issues for the better part of 15 years in, in a focused way. Um, and it's nice to see some of that activity coming to fruition um, at, at this time. And I think there are real opportunities for, for U.S. dairy um, in the sustainability discussions. They are driving much of the marketplace. Um, the good thing is that our industry is, is, has been taking on these issues um, in a very positive and productive manner. And I think we have real gains to be made in the, in the, in the near future. But I would, I would start with those four issues, obviously many others, uh, but those are some of the key ones that we're dealing with. Well, let's back up and talk a little bit of the specifics of each of them. So milk pricing. Uh, do you see any changes in milk pricing in the next farm bill like there was in 2018? Well, I think as we look to the next farm bill in terms of, of, of milk pricing impacts uh, in the policy environment, um, I would have to caveat everything I say um, to put by pointing out that we are just beginning our kind of internal policy process to look at provisions uh, cha potential changes in dairy policy for the for the next farm bill. Um, I, I think at this point in time, what we're looking at is building on the great success of the 2018 farm bill, where we took a, a, a margin protection program that was intended to be beneficial, established back in the 2014 farm bill, that didn't work. It didn't work as intended. It didn't work as, as, uh, uh, as conceived and we needed to make major improvements. That was a huge battle for the 2018 Farm Bill because we did not have the budget baseline that was necessary to make those improvements. But through a series of strategic moves, um, we were successful in both improving our baseline, our budget baseline for the federal budget, and making the case to the Congress that dairy policy was broken and needed to get fixed. Those changes in the MPP, which resulted in the current dairy margin coverage program were significant. And I do want to talk about those because already this year, that dairy margin coverage program has paid out uh, about $450 million um, in the first uh, third of the year. And um, the May numbers have not been announced yet, but I think it's going to be another $100 million uh, in payments in May. So, and I, and I do see the DMC program continuing to make payments through much of the balance of this year because of the rapid increase that we've seen in feed prices. Um, so DMC improvements have been important. Are there other changes that need to be made to that program? I expect so. I think we'll be looking in the next farm bill to do some fine tuning to that. Um, that's probably going to be the, the major focus at this point uh, when I look at, at milk pricing policy changes is surrounding some tweaks to the dairy margin coverage program. Well, I'm guessing that for a lot of the dairy farmer listeners, uh, that will be some that will be a welcome change. Uh, it's also been reported that uh, National Milk requested an expediting an expedited federal milk marketing order hearing. Um, where where is that in the process? What is the timeline? Yeah, so this question, Kim, goes to the challenges we saw last year with the. Um, in the class one, while well, actually throughout the, the, the milk pricing complex as a result of the pandemic and the federal government's response to the pandemic. And it's a lot to kind of unravel all of that. But one of the major challenges we faced, I, I would sort of call it an unintended consequence of the federal government's intervention and support was that the, the class one mover that is used to adjust class one fluid milk prices um, didn't work. There were changes made in that 2018 farm bill that changed the mover from the higher of class three and four 
to the average of class three and four plus an adjustment factor that was designed to, um, to represent the value of the higher of, what the, what the value of the higher of had been for producers since it was established in about, in about 2000. Um, because of the pandemic, um, class three prices, cheese price, cheese driven prices mainly, rose dramatically because the federal government spent most of its resources in the food box program on purchasing cheese for distribution. That led to a very strong cheese market, a strong recovery in cheese prices, while class four prices for butter and powder lagged far behind. So moving from the, from the higher of uh, to the average of hurt producers in a dramatic way last year, costing uh, in the class one side, costing us about $750 million in lost revenue last year. Um, as a result of that, we sought to, we put together recommendations to adjust that class one mover to recoup those losses and try to prevent that kind of problem from happening in the future. Put together our proposal, uh, went through a process internally here at National Milk, and have put together a proposal to amend the federal milk marketing orders to make that change. We've been in a series of ongoing discussions with USDA um, over the last two months on addressing that. And it, we may be able to recoup those losses um, in a different way, uh, recoup them through um, USDA assistance um, to address those losses in the class one markets through a, a payment into federal order pools um, that is um, potentially um, in the offing um, later this summer. Um, can't talk details because they don't have them yet. And USDA, we're still in discussions with USDA on how to do this. But our, our policy objective, our goal here, is to try to recoup those losses, number one, from, from the pandemic impact last year that I just described. And then number two, to fix the process going forward. Um, that process going forward, if we can get the, the damages from last year um, covered in a, in a payment from USDA in short order, we have a little bit more time to fix the ongoing problem in that class one mover. So the proposal we have put together right now is on hold while we continue our discussions with USDA and the Congress on trying to recoup those losses from last year. That makes sense. Uh, and I would say also probably a pretty welcome change to producers uh, because that was a lot of money to be uh, looking at on milk checks across the country uh, in the form of the negative PPDs. One other point that I would add, Kim, on this, just to, just to pick up on the, on the point you just made on the welcome relief, is if we can do it this way, and this is one of the things that's been appealing to us, if we can do it in the manner I just described, um, having payments from USDA into federal order pools uh, to recoup those losses on the milk that was pooled in the various federal orders, um, that could happen this year. Um, under the proposal that we have put together and are, are, we're prepared to advance and, and still are if we can't get relief this, this, through this path with USDA, um, it would probably take about three years to recoup those losses um, because you have to do it through increasing the class one differential over a period of time and recouping it on a month by month basis through a, a higher class one differential. Um, that's gonna have you know, some market impact but more importantly, it's going to take a longer time to do that. So if we can, if we can address this in the short term through this payment, it really would provide immediate relief to producers rather than taking three years to recoup those losses. That makes sense. Moving on to ag labor. 
labor, you alluded to it in the beginning, continues to be top of mind for dairy producers. Uh, what policy changes or opportunities do you see on the horizon? And we know that the Ag Workforce Act passed through the House. I'm not sure where that is in the Senate or if they're working on their own version. Is there any kind of light at the end of the tunnel? Anything that National Milk's working on in this arena? Yeah, there, there is light at the end of the tunnel. And I'm hoping that we can, that light grows larger and that we can achieve it um, uh, this year or certainly in this Congress. You referenced the, the House passage of the Farm Workforce Modernization Act earlier this year. And now we move to the Senate to try to get similar legislation uh, passed there. Uh, we've been engaged in extensive efforts as have a number of other agricultural organizations that we're working with um, in the Ag Workforce Coalition to try to get focus in the Senate on uh, ag labor relief. And the bill uh, that passed the House uh, is one that we had worked very closely with, with our colleagues in agriculture, and it was a compromise bill, uh, the best bill that we could get through the House. Uh, there are some changes that we want to see in the Farm Workforce Modernization Act. We've been clear about that through the process, and we are trying to uh, push the Senate process forward with some of those changes so we can get this accomplished this year. I'm hopeful that the Senate will take up the bill this year. Um, I think it's gonna take the, you know, that 60 vote threshold in the, in the Senate to pass legislation. So you can you know, get invoke cloture uh, to bring a bill to a vote. Um, and that means it has to be a bipartisan bill. Um, so we're hopeful and are engaged in ongoing discussions um, on this issue. And I, you know, it's, it's my hope that we can get this done this year. I will add that the administration's efforts uh, on this issue have been frankly helpful. Um, they too want to see um, ag labor reform. Secretary Vilsack has been using his um, push uh, both uh, on the Hill and within the ag community to try to bring sides together here and get relief. Um, I think it's gonna be important that a package uh, on immigration and ag labor come together that addresses both immigration reform and, and border security. Those issues seem linked. Um, hopefully we can, we can get that put together and, and get legislation passed this year. Agriculture and the dairy industry in particular desperately need it. Um, and it's not only um, uh, legalization of, of or legal status for uh, the current workforce, but it is putting dairy into the H-2A program. We do need changes in H-2A to take it from a seasonal um, temporary workforce um, program to one that, that um, allows um, year-round workers. That's what the Farm Workforce Modernization Act does, and we wanna see that in any final package that emerges here. Yes, and I'm glad that you brought that up because that does always seem to be the largest frustration is that for at least for the dairy industry, you know, we just never quite fit. We don't really fit in the current H-2A uh, program. And then how do we compete? What, what are the biggest barriers that we always run into that we seem to be running into in terms of this discussion about immigration reform? Well, because the dairy, I mean, we've been waiting for this a long, a long time. As has much of the country, and I think the you know the, the real barrier is I don't think there is a more challenging or difficult political issue in our country than than immigration reform, um, and it is uh, it's what's frustrated um, action on this for for many many years, um, and that's where we have to have a coming together 
um, in the middle. I think it's clear, not just in agriculture, but across the economy, that the, the immigrant labor workforce that is coming to this country has added to it. It has been helpful. It has created more jobs. We have right now, we're coming out of a pandemic, and you know the news right now is uh, lots of industries across the country in the hospitality, entertainment, can't get enough workers. You have amusement parks that can't open up fully because they don't have the workers for those jobs. Um, this, is, this is an issue we have to address. And until we do, agriculture is going to be operating with you know, one leg and one arm that's tied behind our back. We're hopping along trying to make ends meet and it becomes increasingly challenging. So this, we have to address this issue. We've got to come find the middle ground here and get this done. And I'm, I'm hopeful that this Congress and this administration will be able to, to find that middle ground. Well, and here's to not giving up on it. Uh, moving on to trade. Uh, you said we have, what's the number, Jim? 30 billion pounds of milk that we don't utilize. Uh, how do we increase worldwide sales? Where do you see us moving to or towards? Well, I, I would say that the U.S. dairy industry is doing a tremendous job in its uh, market sales efforts and opportunities uh, from the U.S. Dairy Export Council to our own cooperatives working together um, export uh, incentive program to the extensive efforts among major dairy processors in this country to develop um, sales um, and, and marketing efforts around the globe have been, um, have been incredibly impactful and incredibly helpful. What we need to advance those efforts is improved trade policy that gives us better access to more markets. You know, we haven't passed a major new trade agreement in um, over 10 years. Um, that's a real problem. Um, the, you know, the, the major trade focus of the last several years has been um, after, after TPP fell by the wayside, uh, has been re, re, uh, renegotiating um, the, uh, the NAFTA agreement and USMCA. Those changes did make improvements, updated USMCA, but that's an existing agreement. We had relations with Canada and Mexico on trade. And as a result of that, Canada and Mexico, uh, actually Mexico and Canada in that order, are the two largest export markets for US dairy. Um, that's the, the value of trade agreements. Uh, TPP would have provided more access for us in Asia. The decision was made by the previous administration to pull out of TPP. Um, I don't think we're going to get back into that in the next couple of years, but the bottom line is this. We need better and more trade agreements um, to expand U.S. export opportunities. Our major competitors on the world dairy market are the European Union and New Zealand. Both of them are very, very active, and they're ahead of us, frankly, in developing trade agreements on a bilateral and plurilateral basis with a number of countries. Um, they're well ahead of us, and that leaves us at a disadvantage. That's why we have to get trade policy moving, and it's a, a, a huge push for us and a huge focus for us. So shifting gears a little bit, uh, I want to talk about plant proteins. So we're hearing more and more about plant protein, plant proteins being combined with dairy. Uh, what does the data say, or is there data to support, you know, maybe long-term financial sustainability of dairy farmers as we make this shift? Well, I don't know that there's a shift that's going to occur in terms of, of uh, dairy. I, I will say a couple of things. Um, that market for plant-based products is growing um, and um, 
you know, is finding a market opportunity. Um, and that's, that's, what the, that's what free markets are all about. Our concern and our focus on this issue um, is not the presence of these products in the marketplace. It is the, um, the theft of dairy names uh, by these products to position themselves under using the, the, the nutritional halo, if you will, of dairy products. Uh, virtually all of these products that are imitating dairy products, using the terms of milk or cheese or butter or yogurt in their labeling um, with a, you know, a, plant, um, a plant name in front of it, um, all of them are implying the nutritional equivalence with dairy by using those terms. Uh, virtually all of them don't have that equivalence with dairy. There, there is not a, a better nutritional package um, in, in all of the, the fluid products, for example, none of them match the nutritional attributes of, of milk. Yet they're using the milk name, implying to consumers that there's an, there's an equivalence. It's a false equivalence, and that's what we pointed out, and that's why we're we're insisting that FDA enforce the existing standards of identity, um, which would, if enforced, would prevent these companies from using dairy terminology in the naming of their products. Uh, much of the rest of the world already follows this, uh, but our FDA has let this, despite the fact that it is in violation of their own standards has turned a blind eye toward it. If you go to Europe, you go to Canada, these products, you don't find something called um, soy milk or almond milk. You find an almond beverage, you find a soy beverage, you can name it what you want to, but the term doesn't have milk. One of the fast growing ones in the marketplace has been this product um, called um, oat milk in the US. The leading seller of it, the leading marketer is a Swedish company um, that has been marketing this product in, in Sweden for many, many years, uh, I think at least uh, 20 years, it's not called oat milk in Sweden. Um, it's called oat beverage or oat, oat drink. And um, yet in the US, because, and that's the reason that is the case is that Sweden won't let them call it, the European Union won't let them call it um, oat milk there. Here, we have the same standard or a similar standard of identity, but our FDA is not enforcing it. So that's the key issue. Um, I would just finally say, these products have every right to be in the marketplace. What they don't have a right to is, to is to position themselves as something that they're not. They are not milk and dairy products. They shouldn't be using that terminology. Uh, agreed. I think you'll, you'll, you'll find every uh, farmer listening to the podcast right now nodding their head. Uh, and you do support the Dairy Pride Act, correct? We are the strong um, advocates of the Dairy Pride Act. We had encouraged uh, Senator Baldwin to introduce that legislation. We're very pleased with her support and her bipartisan support uh, um, across across the Senate. Um, we have continued to push that and are looking at every opportunity to uh, urge FDA to enforce its existing standards of identity, which would preclude these companies from using uh, dairy terms in their product names, unless they use, they can use them if they make clear that it is either an imitation, um, alternative or substitute, depending on the, and FDA has these standards in there already on the nutritional equivalence. If it is not equi equi nutritionally equivalent to a dairy product, it needs to be called an imitation if it's an inferior. Um, and if it is has equivalence on a number of standards, it needs to be called an alternative or a substitute. Um, fortunately, many companies are, uh, are not following those standards 
um, and our, um, our our marketing their products not not following existing FDA regulations. That's that's the standard we want to see enforced. And this again is not a new discussion. I remember testifying uh, in Washington D.C. on this several years ago, and we were at that time we were talking about uh, the FDA enforcing their current standards of identity. Are we any closer? To getting some resolution? Well, I think first we need an FDA commissioner. We don't have one right now. Um, I, I was encouraged um, by the comments by the former FDA commissioner, Scott Gottlieb, um, who seemed to get the issue. Um, he made the, uh, you know, the famous comment that, uh, uh, I'm paraphrasing here, but uh, he made the, the famous comment that uh, he, was, um, he would stipulate that almonds don't lactate. Um, you can't milk an almond, you can't milk a soy plant, um, you can't milk an oat plant. Um, and uh, so we, we thought, I thought there was some action, some movement under Commissioner Gottlieb. Um, right now, I think uh, the FDA needs to uh, have new leadership before we're going to see um, movement on, on this issue. Well, and I think it's certainly something that we need to keep uh, pressure on about because um... It's, it's important, and I don't think anyone can really argue with that. Right, it really is. And that's what we found in a lot of the consumer research. Um, you know, people agree with the, with the common sense point of view that, uh, that we've advocated. The other side has um, tried to suggest that there's a First Amendment issue here uh, when that is simply false and, and misleading. Uh, the government has every right uh, to, uh, to regulate um, commercial speech. There are commercial speech protections, there's no question, but I would point to every single food product um, sold at retail in this country, it has something called the nutrition facts panel. That is a requirement by the federal government. Uh, if somebody tried to market their product without the nutrition facts panel, I'm saying that they had a first amendment right not to do, use that, um, they would lose that challenge. The same standard applies here. Federal government has every right to, to require clear, and labeling on products to ensure that it is not misleading the consumers. Our, our clear message is that the current labeling is misleading and, and needs to be addressed. So we're hopeful that FDA will soon, hopefully, uh, address this and provide greater clarity for consumers in the marketplace. Excellent. So we've had about six months of the Biden administration. What has stood out to you so far from a policy standpoint and what can dairy producers expect from the administration moving forward? What's on your radar? Well, I think there's been a couple of, of uh, positive successes that I've seen. Um, certainly, the you know the early work by this administration on enforcement of USMCA with Canada um, has been very um, very helpful. Um, I had an opportunity earlier this year, shortly after um, she was confirmed by the Senate, had an opportunity to talk with uh, USTR uh, Ambassador uh, Catherine Tai uh, about this issue. And uh, was made the case that, that Canada is uh, not following the letter or the spirit of the USMCA agreement on the tariff access granted to the US in that agreement. And uh, we were pleased that uh, Ambassador Tai did seek enforcement, ask for a dispute settlement panel um, with uh, under USMCA rules to address this issue with Canada. Um, that is that is important. It's the first panel request under the new USMCA agreement. Um, uh, former Trade Ambassador Lighthizer um, had made this point back in December. Uh, he raised it with, with Canada, um, and we were, we were very pleased to see um, uh, the Biden administration follow through and request the dispute settlement panel to, to 
address what we think is, is Canada's abrogation of its responsibilities under um, the agreement by limiting the, 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 um, um, uh, the access of U.S. dairy into Canada through the, way, the, the, the manner in which they've implemented the tariff rate quotas in that agreement. Uh, I, another area I would cite is our work with, with USDA on, on dairy relief. Um, the administration has been very responsive uh, to our um, efforts to get the dairy donation program implemented and operating as quickly as possible. That was a, a program that we had pushed in the, um, uh, in the, in the Congress um, last year and the bill passed in December, uh, provided $400 million for a new dairy donation program. We've been working closely with USDA and getting that program um, stood up and, and operating. And the department's been very, very supportive um, in efforts to do so. We talked earlier about the class one issue and uh, the uh, USDA's um, understanding of our concerns on this issue and its uh, willingness to try to uh, provide a pathway to address it has been, been very positive. And I would note that Secretary Bill Sachs experience with the U.S. dairy industry, his work with us as the, the former head of the U.S. Dairy Export Council, um, really, I think, has, has deepened his understanding of the of, of certainly the dairy industry and, and the issues of concern. Um, all of agriculture has a very strong friend in Secretary Vilsack, and, um, and certainly the dairy industry, with his the deeper appreciation he gained uh, through his leadership of the Export Council, Dairy Export Council, um, I think has positioned him well uh, for his, his new tenure um, at USDA. Uh, I would, you know, I mentioned immigration earlier. That's been a positive development. We had challenges previously trying to move forward. I think the administration understands our concerns on the need to address this issue. And now it's all about getting, you know, bipartisan cooperation here to move um, an ag labor package forward. Um, I think the other area that I've been pleased with um, in this administration to date has been the sustainability area that we mentioned in my opening comments. You know, they, um, I think, understand the importance and the opportunity uh, for agriculture to contribute to um, our, our um, uh, climate efforts overall and to do so by creating new markets and new opportunities for agriculture um, to uh, address climate change and sustainability uh, through market mechanisms, environmental markets that provide, um, provide uh, new opportunities and new revenue streams to producers rather than to address it. You know, there are some who want to see regulations um, and, and you know, limits on our productive capacity in agriculture. I think the approach the administration has taken is positive and there's much more to come on that, but I think it does make me feel good about moving forward in this space, I think we can really make some significant progress in the next couple of years here. So do you see this impacting practices uh, all the way down to the farm level and continue to build upon that? I do, I do see it impacting and I, and I see it impacting in a, in a very positive way. I mean, you know, first of all, we have to remember the very positive story that we have in agriculture, but particularly in, in the dairy industry. Uh, we've been engaged in these efforts for, for many, many years. And um, through the efforts, even to date, um, we can point to the fact that producing a gallon of milk um, just in, in a 10-year period from 2007 to 2017, just with adoption of industry practices, many of which were aimed more focused on improved efficiency 
um, that we've reduced the impact of producing that gallon of milk, requiring 30% less water, 21% uh, less land, and 19% um, uh, smaller carbon footprint um, in producing a gallon of milk in 2017 as it did in 2007. And that was just a start. That's before we had new programs in place. But it gave us, as an industry, the, the, um, the support for the, the, the view that we can establish a goal for this industry to achieve net zero um, emissions by 2050. Uh, that's going to take a number of things to do it, but we're, we're already on a very strong, uh, strong path here to do so. Environmental markets are going to help us achieve those goals by increasing um, uh, revenue flows into the industry. Um, there are new technologies, innovative technologies that are being developed, some that are, are available now, but some of them are too expensive right now. And that's why one of the things that we've been pushing for the last couple of years is an investment tax credit of 30% on uh, investments in uh, technologies that will, uh, for, for digesters and for nutrient recovery technology. So we can take manure, separate out the, the nitrogen, the potassium, and the phosphorus from that manure stream, develop potential marketable fertilizer products there and, and potentially other products from that waste stream um, with equipment that now is too expensive and there's no return for it, but with a 30% ITC, we can help develop some of those markets. Um, looking at the development of food addit feed additives that can reduce enteric methane emissions, some by as much as 30%, and that's just today. We need changes at FDA to help those feed additives um, get, get market access. So there's a number of things that, that can be done and are in process right now that will enable us to move forward boldly on this path of net zero. And I see opportunities at all, all farm size levels. You know, one of the key things that we're looking at is um, improvements in some of the, the conservation programs um, that USDA um, has. We've, we've been able to use those up to this point to improve some of our on-farm stewardship practices, but the current programs don't do enough, for example, uh, for the dairy industry on manure and feed management as two areas. And we're looking at some changes, some additional dollars um, in conservation programs that will help dairy on this journey. And collectively, when you put these efforts together, um, I'm very confident that this industry is going to achieve uh, net zero. It doesn't mean every farm in the country has to be net zero. That, you know, we can get there because some, some farms will actually be a carbon sink um, and others may have, you know, some carbon emissions. But as an industry, we can achieve net zero and that's, that's gonna be important, uh, not only from a policy standpoint, from a marketplace standpoint. This is one of the huge challenges of our time. The message is very clear from consumers. Our customers are constantly talking to, to processors in, in this country and around the world on the need to reduce these emissions. And through uh, the collective efforts of this industry, you know, National Milk's working on the policy front, but uh, uh, Dairy Management Inc., the Innovation Center for U.S. Dairy, uh, Nutrient, and other entities are working on many of these other aspects of sustainability that together are going to position U.S. dairy as the leader in the world, the world's dairy industry, on our ability to produce milk in a, um, in a climate-friendly uh, manner. Well, and that's that's a great story that we all have to make sure that we continue to share and that our farmers get credit for the work that they have done and continue to do as they 
continue to improve along the way. It's also great to hear that there's you're hopeful for continued support of innovation rather than regulation. Because if there's anything we know, it's uh, farmers are really truly the innovators and the solution. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Jim. We appreciate it. This wraps up our Bova News podcast for today. If you liked what you heard, be sure to follow Bova News on your favorite podcast subscription service. And while you're at it, go ahead and follow us on the various social media platforms and subscribe to our YouTube page. And be sure to check out our website, bovanews.com, for more information and alerts to upcoming podcasts and webinars. This has been your host, Kim Bremer. And from everyone at Bova News, have a great day. Thank you.